Hey, welcome back to this season of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the audio files from the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, The Experience 2022. I'm Dr. Stefano Bini, your host for this podcast and the founder chair of DocSF. In this podcast, we'll hear from Ivan Popuriev, PhD, Director of Google ATAP, Advanced Technologies and Products Division of Google, Nicholas Gillian, PhD, the lead machine learning engineer at Google ATAP, and myself, Stefano Bini, a professor with Presurgia UCSF. The three of us are working together on a project to use sensors to improve the ability to collect data from patients. We hope you enjoy this talk and that you'll join us on the DocSF stage in San Francisco. So I think we're delivering on the promise to get you guys thinking about the possible and breaking away from maybe the way you think about the problems today. At the same time, we've heard a lot about how the importance, not only of big data, but yesterday in particular, we focused on how the big data in and of itself isn't actually sufficient to deliver the kind of medicine that we're hoping to deliver, that is around precision medicine. And one of the, the next session, we're talking about how to get down to granular data collection using the new technologies that we have today. So I'm actually gonna be part of this panel and to talk to you a little bit about the work we're doing at UCSF in partnership with Google. Uh, we call the session Sensors, Sensing, and Sensei. And we have Ivan Popuriev, PhD, uh, Director of Google ATAP, Nicholas Skillian, Lead of ML Engineering Google ATAP, and myself, talking to you about a new way we're thinking about moving this forward. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> has been a bit of a trend this, this particular session, the DocSF. We had another person who couldn't attend today. And so Ivan sent us a video clip because he's, uh, he's not well, uh, but he is, he will be well, which is great. Now, Ivan's an amazing person. I first heard him speak at TED and it was a TED that I was completely, he, he actually inspired me to think more openly about the way we collect data in the first place. He's an award-winning scientist, innovator, he has over 20 years of history and experience in the space. He's currently Director of Engineering and Technical Programming at ATAP, which is one of the divisions of Google, for their internal Skunk Works division. But he previously was at Sydney and uh, Disney and uh, Sony, then Fast Company, named one of the 100 most creative people on the planet. So let's go to Ivan's talk. Good morning. My name is Ivan Popolev, and I work at Google. I'm Director of Engineering there, and I'm, I'm leading the team that's working with um, Dr. Bini on exploring modern techniques for artificial intelligence and ambient computing to help with the uh, problems in the, um, solve the problem with the uh, post-operative recovery after orthopedic surgery. I apologize I was not able to join today and um, I, I was really hoping to be there. However, uh, I hope this presentation can help you to set up the kind of high-level view of why we're doing this project, why Google is, is doing this, why, why we think it's important and, and what is the bigger picture that we're looking at by working on this project. So, um, and that's a call is, you know, some thoughts about the future or like, what is a North Star? Like, where, where are we going with that? So um, to kind of paint a really broad, really, really broad strokes, every 20 years, there's a change in computing paradigm. In 1960s, it was enterprise and mainframes. And that was where people would have to go to offices and, and work from offices and not everybody could have access to computing. And the use case was mostly focused on business, right? On business and large enterprise solutions. And then 20 years later, the 1980s, we had a personal PC uh, revolutions happening. And this time computing moved to homes. And now for the first time ever, the average person would have access to computers. And it was focused on the use cases which people can use at homes. 
word processing, home office, computations, gaming, all those things became uh, possible in the 1980s because of this changing paradigms in computing. And it doesn't mean that the enterprise computing went away. It's still there, but it's the use of computing and applications which possible with computing dramatically expanded. And then again, 20 years later, in 2000, now mobile phones and smartphones and wearables made another gigantic leap in application of technology, right? So it went from a home to a mobile use. So now we're carrying computing with us all the time in, in our pockets, in our, on our wrist. And similar to the previous revolution with the PCs, again, a whole new range of applications became possible because now computing are always with us. Like Fitbit, for example, a good example, right? So it would not be possible to do it with PC. And um, the, we believe that right now the whole new, again, there's a new next, next paradigm shift in 2020s. We are moving to the next generation of computing, which we call you know, world computing. Uh, so that's people called the metaverse. And people call it many different names. But the idea is the same, is that computing is all around you. It's not connected to the device. The device is not a proxy for computing, but computing exists around us at all times. And the biggest difference here is that instead of us having to pull out computer, activate it, press the button, and it start working, computing happening, working all the time in the background, and it's helpful and support you in the real time and all the time, right? Now, as I mentioned before, people call you know, world, world computing, people call it metaverse, and variety of different use cases, variety of different names people use for that. But if you look from the game from the high perspective, the modern, this next generation of computing, fundamentally split in two sort of categories. One of them is a virtual reality style of applications where we try to create alternative computer reality, virtual assets, which has value and importance in parallel to the physical world. For example, virtual reality, virtual world have been around since the 90s, now it's a big, big return. Metaverse is one of the examples for that. Artificial intelligence agent, where you can converse with artificial reality representations, which looks like humans, and also a variety of virtual assets, not the real assets. Digital photographs, Web two, in, in case of Web 2, is a digital photograph, digital fashion, YouTube, movies, all those examples of assets which are digital and yet very valuable for the people who own them. And now web, with Web 3, you uh, the question of ownership became, became even more interesting and impossible. So you have now crypto, NFTs, and DAOs, and all, the, all these new techniques allow us to take this digital asset ownership and exchange even further. So this is all kind of virtual assets. The alternative vision for that, and that's something which we are interested in very deeply, is instead of trying to create alternative reality, we're looking to see how can we take computing and embed it in the physical reality? How can the physical world to be enhanced with computation, which happens in the background all the time? And again, as with a lot of things you know, in life, this is, this is very um, sort of, old ideas as old as virtual reality. Some of them is, uh, you know, augmented reality, uh, an idea that, that the graphics can be overlapped in the physical world. And when you go see around, have virtual images overlapped on, on, the, on top of the physical one, augmenting them with additional information. Ambient computing is another one where interaction and intelligence is embedded into the physical world around us, which understand our intent and provide us with information or help us to do something on the background without us doing anything. And the similar one is that ubiquitous computing is a more academic term, using academic literature. Um, things like extended reality, where you have not only overlapping uh, images, but also robots and different mechanical features and, and mechanical actuation of the world, where the world changes, in physically changes in response to your interaction, understanding who you are. And then this idea of digital twins, it's 
quite popular in enterprise, uh, uh, you know, 4.0, 3.0, where a virtual reality simulation of physical process being created, and which updated in real time to create like virtual representation twin with physical reality so that you can uh, extract insights what's going on there without actually trying to observe the entire object. So your entire factory can be in a computer or your entire hospital can be in a computer and you can see what's going on there without having to the real um, to the real, real, real object. So kind of like a really bird's eye view. So this is where we're looking at. We're, we're, we're really excited about this opportunity to create a uh, enhanced reality with the computing and see how computing can help in change and create new applications for, for us when computing is invisible and then in the physical world. Now, there's a lot of all these ideas in a lot of directions, but the reality here is that all of them sort of falls into the same architecture. The architecture and underlying principles of all these extended reality applications is fundamentally the same. It's all started with sensors. So we are using sensors to scan the physical reality, scan uh, the objects or domains of interest, measure them, and convert them to the data. Right? And the better sensors you have, and the more sensors you have, the more accurate representation you can create, right? And once you've done this measurement, what you can do, you can now transmit this data into the cloud. And the transmission technique is very exciting and it's a very important part of it because new technologies such as 5G or satellite communication and so on, another emerging communication technology allows us to transmit very large amount of data from the object of interest, from the location of interest into the cloud in the real time. So, that's how we can in real time almost have a real time representation of physical objects. And once this, all the sensor data gets in the cloud, we can combine them together and create digital representation or digital twin, if you like this term better, of some sort of you know entity or artifact we're trying to you know, investigate or keep track of or, or measure. And um, it can exist, of course, in the cloud, but it can exist in the blockchain, it can exist in other storage techniques. It, it's not, not, not important. The important thing is that all the variety of the sensors can be combined in a single holistic representation that represent the entity we are interested in. And once it has a holistic representations, we can apply modern AI techniques to that representation and get insights or recommendations, understanding, but also, you know, like, like create a return loop and control our environment if we want. And once we have this stuff, when we have this insights and presentation, they can be presented back to the um, to the consumer, right? The consumer could be a, for example, a doctor, a professional, or health professional, or a customer, a patient, or anybody can get this data and use it in a way to go and update the physical object or you know propose some sort of activities in the physical world. Now, the display itself, if you think about um, that, doesn't have to necessarily be, be visual display or you know, it can be virtual reality display, it can be mobile phone, it can be watch. It can also be a robot, which in return for that, uh, for this loop, goes there and adjusts something in the, physical, in the physical world. So we can build a complete loop from the reality to digital twin and back to the reality. So as I mentioned before, all the approaches we have right now, they all fall in this generic diagram of how things, how things work. And the work we're going to present today uh, with my colleague, Nicholas Gillian, who's going to talk a little bit about it, is actually follows this exact um, architecture, this exact architecture being, being implemented for that particular use case, which is the uh, quality measures after knee replacement surgery and, and orthopedic procedures. So why we think this architecture is interesting and exciting? I mean, it seems pretty 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 common, right? But why do you think that it's, it opens new opportunities which is not possible before? 
Um, let me talk about four of them, right? So why uh, four opportunities uh, and four qualities uh, that leads to new use cases, new opportunities applications. First of them is sensor clouds. So instead of trying, until now, we were collecting data from sensors and sensor fusion, fusion, fusing data from sensors was extremely difficult and just computationally and, and, and logistically very, very hard, right? So that's why most of the cases we're just using one sensor or few sensors, and, and it always becomes very complex. It doesn't scale with number of sensors. You add one more sensor, it's how your system starts working, right? Uh, with the modern techniques, we can truly combine as many sensors as we want and create true sensor clouds where sensors don't even have to be connected to the same computer. They don't even have to be in the same network. As long as they connect to the same database in the cloud, we can combine this sensor data and uh, merge various sensor data into single representation, as I mentioned before, of the holistic uh, representation of the object, which means it's you can see, look at the data from many different angles. You can go by visual data and accelerometer data and radar data and or, or temperature and create one single representation. And um, it becomes possible because with the modern computational techniques and, and, and communication techniques, very little computing needs to be done on the edge. So the small device you put in the environment to measure some sort of performances does not have to have any use case applications or any particular models and particular computational techniques on the device. This can be very inexpensive device to just collect the sensor data and transmit it to the cloud. It's a purely bridge from objects into the cloud representation or digital representation, right? And that's very exciting because you can optimize them and then make them very inexpensive, very reliable, and they're not dependent on the use case. So the same sensor can be used for a variety of use cases because it doesn't have an intelligence on its own there. All it does is create data transmit to the cloud using some sort of 5G protocol, right? Very, very quickly. And once this data inside of the inside of the cloud and uh, kind of used to build holistic representation of certain certain object or something, you can apply the entire power of computing, the entire power of internet and, and the cloud computing to solve your problem. You can truly run supercomputing AI on any use case. So you can build extremely complicated machine learning models uh, to solve very simple problems or, or for very inexpensive setups, right? And, um, and that's, that's very exciting because fundamentally, that means that you don't have a limitation on computing. Any computing requirement you have, any level of complexity of the problem you have, we can solve it right now, now while work being staying at, the, on, at scale, while staying within the power constraint, within the cost constraint, and so on and so forth. So this is super exciting. And um, it also means because of the uh, communication, because of the chip devices, because of that, this all can be done in real time. So we can continuously getting this data, saying to this cloud, computing provided inside in real time, all the time in real time analytics. And that's, again, this has not been possible until, until, until recently. Uh, and now I think with new emerging uh, technologies, it's becoming possible. And so today, my, uh, my colleagues, both Dr. Zbigniew's colleagues and uh, my Google colleagues, is going to talk about some of the use cases which possible in this kind of architecture. Our work on uh, what we're going to talk about is completely based on these principles, right? So we use multiple sensor, almost no computing on the edge. It all goes to the uh, supercomputer on, on the back, and then we compute that and providing real-time analytics. So I would like to pass a baton to uh, my colleagues and um, talk about the project we're building. And um, I would like to thank you very much for your attention. And if you have any questions, uh, you can connect me on Instagram or on, on Twitter. So thank you, Dr. Pubrio. And uh, Nick, I'd like to bring up Dr. Dr. Gillian, lead machine learning engineer, previously worked at Hyperplane, where he worked a lot on real-time gesture control and recognition. 
and uh, did some research also as a junior Samsung. Been an amazing partner in this project. Nick, thank you. Do you have your clicker? Good morning. Great to see you all. So uh, as Stefano said, yeah, my name is Nicholas Gillian. I lead machine learning at Google ATOP. So as Ivan said, ATOP is an innovation lab at Google. And today I'm going to talk about some of those key pillars that uh, Ivan mentioned, uh, specifically AI and how modern AI techniques combined with sensors can kind of push us towards this vision that everyone has talked about. I'm going to talk about this in the context of the project that we are doing in collaboration with Stefano's team at UCSF. So the goal of that project is to see and demonstrate that we can use low-cost, non-invasive, consumer-grade hardware combined with the best of Google's AI and software to show that we can understand and replicate patient outcome following surgery. So this is all done with a small consumer-grade sensor like this. This is called the Google Jacquard Tag. And actually, if you look inside this sensor, as kind of Avan was saying, there's nothing really new inside this sensor. There's an inertial sensor. I'm sure everyone has used inertial sensors for 10, 20, 30 years. There's a small microcontroller. There's some flash memory. There's some Bluetooth, so it can, can talk to uh, a mobile device, which can talk to the cloud. But the thing that's very powerful is that we can now start to take our AI algorithms and run them either directly on this tag or connect the tag so we can stream the data to the cloud. So as Ivan was saying, in real time, we can take the best of our AI techniques and extract as much information and richness from these sensors as possible. So this project is specifically looking at uh, TKA, but we expect that the techniques we're working on here to be applicable throughout healthcare. Specifically in the project right now, our goal is to show that we can replicate these $100,000 plus state-of-the-art GitLab systems. So, motion capture, force splits. I'm sure everyone in the room here is very familiar with these systems. And we're working on demonstrating that we can, through these very small, cheap inertial sensors, we can estimate very similar outcomes to these state-of-the-art systems. So in our current uh, setup, what we're doing is, you can see on the two pictures on the left here, the, a standard motion capture setup. I'm sure everyone in the room has seen this before. So you have uh, infrared dots placed all over the body cameras throughout the room so we can uh, track the user as they move around and estimate their joint limbs and so forth. And then on the floor, you can also see some force plates. So through the combination of kinetics and kinematics, the GitLab system will then estimate uh, the user's key variables. And in these studies, we have a few of these Descartes tags placed across the user's uh, body. So specifically, we have one sensor and an insole on the shoe, one on the shank, one on the thigh, one on the pelvis and one on the wrist. And we have symmetrically same setup other side. Now, it's worth pointing out that we have quite a large number of sensors in the study, but we've actually found that just with a single sensor, we can actually get some really exciting results, which I'll show you in a few minutes. So one of the things we're trying to understand is how many sensors do we need to be able to replicate the GitLab with a good enough error metric that would allow us to take this analyst outside of the GitLab? And specifically for different key variables, which placement of the sensor gives us the best results. So this should be obvious, but I don't think it is to a lot of people that if you want to track, for example, the motion of the knee, the closer you can get your sensor to the knee, the better your results are, right? That's pretty obvious, but we still see a lot of people placing sensors in lots of different parts of the body, very far away from the key variable they want to track. 
And yes, indeed, we find that the closer you convert these type of sensors to the key variable you're interested in, whether it's your elbow joint or your knee joint or your ankle, the better your results are going to be. So in the current phase of the project, we're actually looking at can we demonstrate this on healthy volunteers? Our results are, are now looking good. We're actually scaling this up at the moment to patients who've actually gone through TKA. Uh, but the results I show you today are all on healthy participants. Um, we're, from this, we're trying to extract a number of key variables, the standard variables that you would get from a GitLab system, such as knee angular velocity, uh, total support moment, hip flexion, and so forth. And we're trying to understand with these inertial sensors, what are the key variables we can replicate? And what are the things that we either have higher error on or we just simply cannot replicate? Because you know this is not magic, obviously. There's always a limit to sensing. There's always a limit to AI. We're trying to see how far we can push this. So this is how the setup works. This is what it looks like. So on the two plots here uh, on the second and third row, you can see around two seconds worth of data from our inertial sensors. So on the second row, you can see the uh, accelerometer data. So you have three axes there, standard X, Y, Z. And on the bottom plot, you can see the output from the gyroscope. So again, you have roll pitch yaw, so it's a standard kind of six axis inertial sensor. On the top plot, you can see here one of our key variables from the GitLab. This is knee angular velocity. And in orange, you can see the output from the UCSF GitLab. So this is the state of the art reference signal that we're trying to replicate. And in blue, hopefully everyone can see this on the plots, you can see the output of our neural networks that are taking this inertial sensor data and actually trying to predict what the time series is. So the key thing here is we're, we're using advanced AI techniques to take the raw sensor data and directly try to predict what the output of the system should be. So this is a similar type of task to, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with language translation. I'm sure you've all used perhaps Google Translate at some point to maybe translate from English to French or French to Spanish or, and so forth. Or maybe you've tried the fun thing of going English, French, French to Spanish, Spanish to German, German to English and see what happens. This is a similar, this is a similar idea. We're trying to now convert sensor data and we're trying to translate it into a different domain. And it doesn't actually have to be one language. It doesn't have to be just English or Spanish. We can actually estimate many variables from the same input. So here's another example. Again, this is knee angular velocity for multiple plots. You can see again, the system is not absolutely perfect. The error is not zero. But as a researcher, I want the error to be zero. But I also have an industrial hat of shipping many products before. The error doesn't have to be zero. It just has to be very close to zero. It just has to be good enough so that we can actually expand this beyond the GitLab. So here, for example, you can see for knee angle for fixed walk. And there's a very interesting point on this plot, which is hopefully everyone can see this at the bottom. So in, in red here, you have the ground truth data from the system. And you'll notice one thing that the data is not consistent, right? It's sparse. It starts here at 200 and continues through. If anyone's worked with this system, this is very normal. This just means that the user has walked through a laser gate. The system has tracked them for you know, maybe a stride and a half. They walk through another laser gate, and the system stops tracking them. So they walk through, they're tracked. But notice our system is continuously predicting the data. This is because you're wearing sensors in your shoe, you're wearing on your knee, and so forth. This means that you can continue walking through the laser gate, through the door, down the stairs, out the door, get in your car, drive home, go for a hike. And our system can continue to make these estimates and send them securely through our uh, apps to the cloud so that surgeons can actually look at these insights and gain insights from them outside of the GitLab. 
And that's really exciting. And that's one of the key things I think Stefan is going to talk a little bit about in a few minutes. Here's another one, which is a knee moment. And another key one, which I'll point out again, which this, so this is ground reaction force. Now, if you pause for a second, you're like, hmm, this is interesting. This is ground reaction force. This is not just taking the motion of your leg. This is actually combining it with the force plate that's on the floor and extracting joint angles. How are we doing this with just an inertial sensor? Well, I would say we're not really estimating ground reaction force here. What our models are doing is they're aware of the weight and the, the, you know, the height of the user and so forth. They're aware of the acceleration of the exact acceleration of their foot as they're moving, different sensors in the limbs. By combining all of this, our models are at least able to approximate what this trend should look like. So they're not estimating true ground reaction force, but given enough context of the situation, they can do a good enough job that even in this case, obviously we have a higher error here than for example, knee angular velocity. But even in this case, this signal may be good enough to give some useful insights to surgeons and uh, folks that want to analyze this data. So let me talk a little bit about exactly how we're doing this. So I mentioned this sequence to sequence neural network technique, similar to the translation analogy. So we have the raw signal that goes into the network and the network directly tries to estimate one or more of these time series. The key thing here is this could be one inertial sensor, or in our case, it could be a full suite of inertial sensors across different parts of your body. For example, in your shoe, maybe one on your wrist, for instance. It could be other types of sensors. It doesn't have to be inertial sensors. It, there could be a camera if it needed, or a radar sensor, or PPG, or a heart sensor. The key thing is the neural network doesn't really care. It just says, give me this input stream, and I will try my best to translate it into this other domain. So the way we do this, we break it down into three key stages. And this is really where the kind of modern AI principles come around. So the first stage is our encoder. And what we're doing here is we're taking one or more time series sensor streams, and we're trying to encode it into another subspace where the machine learning algorithm can extract and learn a lot of the rich features of the sensor. So that could be either one inertial sensor, multiple inertial sensors, or a sensor fusion case. The key thing here is that we train these encoders without any labels. This is critical because it's, as many of you will know, it's extremely expensive and time-consuming and very difficult to get patients to come into the lab and go through these motion capture systems. And you, from an hour or two of data, you might get just a couple of walking strides. It's very difficult and expensive to build this. So one of the key things we build on here is we are just taking the sensor data itself it doesn't even have to be done in the lab. You could put the sensor on someone else and they could go and play baseball, for example. And what this encoder is doing is it's learning the fundamental physics of how the sensor sees the world. And it learns how to project that data into a, a better mathematical subspace to make it easier to solve these types of problems. So on top of this encoder, we then take the temporal information and we encode what's called a latent time series. And again, this is this mathematical subspace, which takes all of the richness from multiple sensors, extracts very meaningful information from it, and starts to build this hierarchy of knowledge that goes over time. Again, this is done without any labels. And then the last key stage is built on this very solid foundation. We now can train one or more task-specific decoders. So for example, if we wanted to estimate knee angular velocity, we would have a knee angular velocity decoder. 
If we want to estimate a hip moment, we would have a hip moment decoder, and so on and so forth. And this is where we take a small amount of golden ground truth labels from, for example, the motion capture system or the GitLab, and we use this to train our models. So the bottom two components of this are all trained with unlabeled data. The top component is trained with task-specific data. And this makes these models very efficient when it comes to learning from small data sets or rare data sets in cases where, with patients with disease, for example, where it may be not only very expensive, but just extremely difficult to get that type of data. Another key thing to point out here is that this model is specifically built so it can actually run on this thing. So we can actually take this model and compress it down so it's small enough to fit on this very small inertial sensor, fit in 16 kilobytes of memory, run at very low power for extended time periods. But as Avam was saying, we're going to be moving into a future where very little of the compute needs to happen on the, these devices, which means they will get even cheaper and they will get even smaller and the battery will last longer. As we improve our data transmission techniques and everything in the future, we'll see more and more of things moving from edge-only solutions to a hybrid to into the cloud. And this opens up, as Avam was saying, this supercomputer to help push these results even further. So that's a, a high-level summary of how we're approaching this technique in terms of how do we map directly from raw sensor data into these type of insights. Something that's also worthwhile uh, talking about is, in addition to taking this time series data, we can also pull extra context into these models to improve them even further if the context is available. So for example, if we have user context, if we understand the user's height, for example, or their weight, if we understand their age or their gender, all of these factors may help the model to improve its predictions depending on the task you're trying to predict for. Similar, if we can actually input specific information about the task, for example, if we know the user is going through a rehabilitation stage, and we know we're asking them to do, for example, squats, or asking them to walk up some stairs, or asking them to walk across a flat surface. If we know that, we can input this information to the model, and this can help reinforce the model's predictions and get even better predictions. So here's a good example of this. Uh, along the top axis, we have our predictions using only the inertial data. And the bottom is when we can input some user context data. So you can help to see that just with the sensors alone, we get a very good prediction of the moment. But by adding this extra information, we can tighten up the outputs. So this is pretty exciting research. And both myself and Stefano are really happy about where the results are going on this. But sometimes it's very hard to get research out into products, as many people in the room know. So the good news is that the technology we're using here from both the hardware and the algorithms is exactly the same technology we have used in many products before. In a partnerships between Google and Adidas, for example, uh, where you can take the same uh, tag, place it in an insole, and go out and play soccer for you know, multiple hours. And these algorithms, we will be able to track your speed and how fast you've kicked the ball and how many passes you've done and so forth. Or with uh, Levi's, where you would take exactly the same tag, you would snap it into a connected jacket, and now you can actually perform gestures on the jacket and it can understand your context and, and other things. So it's exactly the same technology. We're just changing the task-specific encoders at the top. So this is where we're at today, which is really exciting. But where are we going And on the theme of, you know, uh, in uh, 2037, where are we going to go to? And I think one of the useful things to do, an exercise I like to do in predicting the future, is to look at where other things are today in other domains. So a great example of this is if you look at computer vision, 
Where is computer vision today compared to, for example, inertial sensing, which is a little bit behind? Because there's a lot more people working on computer vision, and there's a lot more computer vision data sets out there. And what you'll have probably all, all aware of 10 years ago, we had this step function where we had this kind of holy trinity of compute data and algorithms came together for the first time. And a lot of these really good ideas that have existed for 30, 40, 50 years suddenly started to work because these three things came together. And for an, this type of an, uh, inertial sensing, for example, particularly in this domain, I would argue we definitely have the compute and we definitely have the algorithms. But one of the problems we have in this domain is we're lacking some of the data sets, for example. So if we look at inertial sensing, there's not many inertial uh, sensing data sets out there, particularly combined with motion capture, particularly combined with TKA analytics and so forth. So one of the key things we're doing is try to use these unsupervised techniques to really bootstrap this component so we can feed this part forward. But if you look at what happened 10 years ago, I predict a very similar trend is going to happen in, in, in this field, particularly for these wearable sensors, where you can see that the best signal processing engineers in the world and computer vision engineers in the world are working with very complex algorithms, handcrafting these features to get the best image classification they had. So uh, on this axis, you have error. Uh, this is obviously time. And what you can see in this big step function is this is really you know, 10 years ago when one of the first big deep learning computer vision models really started. You know, This is where computer vision really started to work, per se. And really the big step change here is the engineers moved away from handcrafting these features to using a neural network to learn it directly from the data, which is exactly the type of thing we were trying to show today, where you move a lot of the signal processing from the pipeline and directly try to estimate these trends from the data. And you can see that over time, this has continued to improve. Um, as we're all in person, let me ask a question. Does anyone know what this red line corresponds to? You can all see it, see this red line here? What is this? Anybody know? This is human error, 5%, okay? So what that means is in 2015, for the first time, machine learning models actually were doing better than the average human on this task, right? And if you fast forward to today, you can see now, this is now uh, accuracy on this case instead of error. This is now top one accuracy instead of top five. So this is much harder. You can see this trend has continued and continued and continued. So we're going to see exactly the same type of trend in this, in, in this field, particularly in these wearable sensors. And the more we can start to connect these sensors to the cloud and build up these data sets and leverage these very powerful unsupervised techniques, so we can take that little bit of golden data from motion capture systems, for example, and combine it, we're going to get the same type of trend in, in this area, which is really exciting. So I think I'm going to stop here. Thank you all for your attention. And I'm going to hand over to Dr. Beanie. Thank you. So you heard from Ivan that computation is no longer an issue when you go to the cloud. We've heard about the amazing capability of us to move some of the computation from the edge to the cloud, which allows us to get sensors that can replicate a gate lab. Where does that leave us as orthopedic surgeons? Now think about this. The rest of the world is working with this. This is the best, the functional score of the WOMAC. And this is how we're currently tracking how well we're doing with the joint replacements. It is validated at one year, which means you take a survey before surgery, and at one year, and not before or after, you can get a metric which gives you some sense of how well the patient's doing, and it's their perception of how well they're doing. At a, at a population level, they work reasonably well. At the individual level, they're not very good at all. 
I get better data from my um, pocket-driven morning route from running from my uh, pocket sensor. So the question is, is this the best we can do in 2022? And what gets me so excited about this work we're doing at Google is that the answer is we can do better. So can we test this hypothesis? The machine learning algorithms could use data from inertial sensors to accurately replicate the GateLab outputs that were known to be useful in the measurement of function, building on what we know from the past. And from that information, use convolutional neural networks to create an entirely new picture of how a knee moves in space. And to use a terminologist popular today, can I create a digital twin of your knee? And from that information, track how you're doing. So using simultaneous acquisition, as we saw earlier, in great detail, 3D motion capture and IMUs, we can now create an accurate and reproducible picture of how your knee functions in four dimensions, with the fourth dimension being time, anywhere, anytime, on anyone. Interesting. Now, that data, the data we use to teach the algorithms will be made public to everyone. The algorithms will be made public to everyone. This is an open platform approach to this. Anybody can use those data forms. And the idea being, yeah, I'm used to you having the makeup here. And the idea being that we're not 100% sure how people will use this data. It's a new way of measurement. It's like adding a metric system. It's a little more logical than the imperial system. But from that, where we're going next is taking that information, say 12 different outputs from the knee as the patient is going through certain tasks, like get up and go, walk 40 feet, go up some stairs, combining them to create a data set that gives us a picture of that knee and doing that on as many people as we can get a hold of in partnership perhaps with Anthem or with some of the medical centers that are present here today or with the academy, whoever. You get a normal data set from which you can now reference normal. Then you have a measure of how you are doing that is now just an augmented to you. It becomes your measure of outcome. Say zero to 10 or zero to 100. How well can you do? How well can you be expected to do with a procedure? So that now instead of being tethered to a difficult to measure output like a patient part outcome measure, we can actually measure how well you're doing relative to someone like you. How useful could that be? So in 2037, maybe we have sensor-derived outcome measures are the norm. And the data is not just coming from your wearable sensors, as uh, Ivan pointed out, the data may be augmented by the Internet of Things. Imagine other sensors in the house that are collecting and pushing data to that same platform, the same algorithm, and augmenting and improving it. We, now we have an algorithm that makes sense of that data with powerful algorithms, and now we get into predictive analytics. What's interesting about this is the data can be dynamic. We're stuck now that if a patient is asked to do, I don't know, three tasks, and they forget to do one, the data is no longer useful. In this context, it's the opposite. We can impugn the data that's missing. And therefore, if your particular patient doesn't do a certain set of tasks, we can still give them an outcome measure that is whatever it's supposed to be. It's dynamic, it's use-specific, age, gender, height. I'm not sure you quite picked up on Nicholas pointed out that we did a control randomized study. In other words, we control for height, we control for weight, we control for all these variables. In theory, that means those variables no longer play any element in the outcome. But when they put those variables back in, they're able to improve the output. That's how sensitive these algorithms are. It's normalized to you, your peers, your social context, provides insights. Now, what we can do with data like this isn't just say, hey, your Womack score isn't great. Now I can say your score isn't great and it's because your quads are weak. It's because your other hip is problematic. We can track people and see their back pain increase their, their inability to walk or force them to walk in a certain way. And that all comes out from a sensor that you wear in your shoe or your sock or your belt as routine. 
What would that mean for patients? I just came up with some ideas. Imagine things embedding the perioperative care pathways. One of the work, some of the work we've done at UC shows that patients really love the feedback loop about what's happening to them perioperatively. Now they get a really objective measure. We can gamify, we'll talk about it in a minute. It could be linked to a personal assistant. We'll see you later today. What a personal assistant could look like in the future is tracking this with you. They say, hey, by the way, I've noticed this, you should do that. It could be integrated to personal health record, which is in the blockchain, which you can share and bring with you. And it's tied to insurance premium, right? If you achieve a certain level of outcome, you might have gotten to a certain benefit. Providers can now go at risk. If you have a measure that is objective, that is certified, that insurance companies agree to, and you say, this particular population, I have put a sensor on them, and I know they're going to have require more cost or lower cost, I can, do, I can go and risk-adjust the bundles. Patient management, of course, comparative data analytics, but also feedback. The feedback loop can now go back to your robot, can go back to your robot company. You can say that in my population, with the way I do surgery, these inputs lead this output, so you can change them. You never had, we haven't had ever an objective enough outcome that that loop is actually functionally useful. If you look at all the data right now about outcome measure, et cetera, it's largely in the 0 0.6, 0 0.7 range, as far as I'm concerned, clinically irrelevant. Gamification, obviously, if you have a measure that's objective, you can now start to play with it. I don't know how many of you have a Peloton, but if it wasn't for the little leaderboard on that thing, I probably wouldn't use it. <laughs> I'm competitive enough that I need to be in the top 30% of my age group. Otherwise, I can I keep running. That's what keeps me fit and happy. Gamification works. We learned about, a lot about it yesterday. These tools that require objective data outputs and inputs, other use cases. I was talking to a friend of mine in New York recently. Here's a company, a pretty big company that's using drugs to decrease muscle lack of muscle wasting during certain disease types. They're having a very hard time quantifying how effective the drug is because they can't measure the impact on patient's strength and gait and ability to walk. This kind of technology could do that. Orthopedic device development. Do we really know that a medial pivot polyethylene insert or, certain, or a reverse shoulder orthoplasty one sort or another is better than another? This kind of technology can get us to the point where we have objective measures that we can then look at for outcomes that are normalized to that patient population. So we get away from the norm, the average, trauma, stroke rehabilitation, back pain issues, optimization of your gait. Yesterday, we saw an incredible feedback loop using those pads that had tactile feedback. And they're able to change a runner's gait while they're running by providing feedback loops that went into tactile sensors placed on their skin so they could track them. And while they're running, give them feedback, hey, this one's not the right way to do it. What if we could do that with knee joint replacement patients? I think the potential here is massive. That's why I'm so excited about doing this work because it gets us away, gets us away from these paper-based, questionnaire-based outcome measures into an entire new world. And the way we're doing it at Google is great because it's going to be open access to everyone. And we hope to create a, um, a group of uh, collaborators in this space to try to get to prove this point. Because the last point in this, which we haven't proven yet, as far as I'm concerned, in healthcare, is that if we have all this data and we actually collect and act upon patients' disease on us, do we actually change the outcome? And I think that's a question that still is a little bit open, but for us to figure out. So with that, I wanna thank you for listening. So thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed that talk and how that comes in together with all the work we've done. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and will consider joining us live in San Francisco for DocSF 2023 when we will explore how digital technologies will enhance, support, and enable the expansion of the outpatient surgery arena. 
Register now to join our mailing list at docsf.health, docsf.health, and be the first to access our limited tickets. DocSF, join the revolution.